All right. Last week, we, we took a little bit of a detour in that we veered away from 1 Corinthians. And as I said, I thought we would be back in 1 Corinthians this week, and uh, that is where we are. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to make your way over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we're heading this morning, picking up with where we left off about two weeks ago. All right. If you haven't been with us or you're new with us or um, just unfamiliar with where we are, I'll give you a little uh, reminder or a little context. Paul was writing to this church in Corinth that he helped establish. God used him in a powerful way. And he's correcting some issues that they have. Among those issues would be divisiveness, uh, an arrogance, a self-inflatedness. And really their, their lives are not lining up with what Paul would expect their lives to look like. And that's really where we left off two weeks ago. He, he laid their life as though they are reigning as kings. Everything is so easy and pleasant, acting as though they've already arrived as Christians. And Paul's laying his own life alongside that, saying, hey, I, I'm suffering, I'm struggling, I'm, I'm poor, I'm hungry, all these things. And he says, hey, you know, my life looks a lot more like the ministry and life of Jesus than yours. And so he's laying those things side by side, and that's where we're going to pick back up here this morning. But before we do that, we're going to jump into verse 14, but before we do, let me just pray for us once again. I, I sense the need to do that. And uh, Lord willing, we'll look at verses 14 through 21 this morning, all right? Let me pray. Father, again, I, I thank you for today. And Lord, I just ask that in this moment you would quiet our hearts, you would still our hearts. I pray that over mine as well. Lord, there's 10,000 things today that I'm sure each of us are dealing with various circumstances, hardships, maybe, maybe a, an exceedingly abundant amount of blessings, and that's just, we're bubbling with that, and, and maybe even distracted by it this morning. But Lord, I pray that in this moment you would calm us, give us a keen awareness of your Spirit among us, and Lord, give us a keen awareness of your Word Lord, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand. Lord, I pray that you would guard my mouth from error. Lord, that I might speak rightly, knowing that as I speak in accordance to your word, your word will never return void. It always accomplishes exactly what you've set forth for it to accomplish. So, Father, do that work this morning among us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so with Paul having just laid out this comparison between his life and that of the Corinthians, he, he begins in verse 14 with this statement. And I'm just going to unpack this a little at a time this morning rather than reading the whole text. So look with me, verse 14. He says, I do not write these things to shame you. That, that evidently is a very real possibility of a natural response for them. You have Paul, this apostle, describing his life. He's pointing out the life of the Corinthians. And they're so different. They're so far apart from one another. And a natural response, a natural human inclination might just be, man, I'm ashamed. And Paul's saying, that, that's not my purpose here. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to bring shame, but rather I'm trying to admonish you. But to admonish you as my beloved children. I want to admonish. I want to build up. 
And notice he uses this familial language, this, as my beloved children. Now we're going to linger on that language some today because over the next several verses, he's going to continue to use that. But I, I think we can certainly understand just as with our own children, maybe if you have kids, you, you correct, you rebuke, you, you try and do that in such a way that we don't shame our kids, right? We don't want to shame them. We don't desire to do that. We want to admonish. We want to build them up. We want to encourage. We want to correct. And so it is with Paul as he's writing this. He's saying, I'm not doing this for the purpose of shaming you. That's not my intention. But rather to build you up, to admonish. Now, you might ask, well, where is he getting this family-type language? What do you mean, Paul? Beloved children. How can you say that about this particular church here in Corinth? Look with me in verse 15. Now, these are all strung together with a series of conjunctions, okay? So this, this is building right off of verse 14 and verse 15 and 16. They're all tied together. He says, for, that's a real for, it's really there. It says, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. So if you were to have countless tutors, now... Let's just consider that for a moment because that could sound a little confusing. Your translation may have guardians there as well. In the Greek culture in that day, it was very normative to have, especially in homes of influence, people that had a lot of um, maybe wealth or prosperity, what have you, for their kids, they would appoint a guardian or a tutor. And that guardian would be tasked with taking the kids to school, making sure they get back okay, making sure they study their lessons, making sure they're moral, upright individuals. So they're given a certain measure of authority over the life of that kid. And so what he's saying is, you may have countless tutors, a myriad of tutors. Maybe your text says 10,000. That's actually what the word behind that in the Greek. 10,000 tutors. You hear me say that a lot. It's not meant to be a literal number. It's just a myriad of tutors. Maybe you have countless tutors in Christ. Now, he's relating that to pastors, elders, teachers, those within the church. He means it in a positive light. Those who are charged with oversight, some measure of responsibility, you may have a bunch of those. He says, yet you would not have many fathers. Now, here's where he's pointing back towards himself. Because remember, he's called them his beloved children. You would not have many fathers. Paul here is distinguishing his role that he has a, a particular responsibility. He, he has a particular... Um, how do I say this? He has a, a certain designation among them that's a little different in that God used him to help plant and establish this church. Look, look what he goes on to say. Look, look where he's drawing this out from. He says... I became your father through the gospel. So what is this fatherhood rooted in? In Christ Jesus, foremost, I became your father through the gospel. Now, became there, the word behind that, and I'm, I'm going to use some, some Greek references here so that we can understand this. But the word behind that is, is actually to beget, or it's begotten. He uses the same word, speaking of Onesimus, over in the book of Philemon when he says, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. So you may just say, time out a second, Seth. Wait a minute. What is Paul talking about birthing 
people. What? What? What, what, do, what do you mean, Paul? This is some weird language. What Paul's saying is that God used him in a particular way to see this church birth, to see it established. And, and by that, Paul's saying, I have a particular responsibility towards you as my kids. There might be others who come along and, and they're guardians and tutors over you, but God used me to, to help bring you to Him. And therefore, I have a certain responsibility as your spiritual father to invest and rebuke and restore. And, and so that's where he's deriving all of this from. All of this family language. All of this is coming out of this relationship in Christ in the birth of this church. That's where all this is coming from. Now, now look what he says. He keeps going. He says, therefore, again, tying all this together. This is all just building right off of uh, the, the prior uh, sentence. Therefore, I exhort you. So again, based off of my responsibility as your spiritual father, I exhort you, Corinthians. That's what he's saying. Be imitators of me. Now, for those of us in the West, we hear be imitators of me, especially those of us that maybe come from the U.S. Some flags go up, and we start saying, whoa, whoa, whoa now, Paul. That, that's kind of a prideful statement. You're talking about guarding people from arrogance. That's pretty proud of you to say, hey, imitate me, right? I mean, a, a lot of our churches in the U.S., we would say, oh, oh no, you can't imitate. You shouldn't imitate me. No, no, no. You do your thing. I'm just a lowly, wretched sinner, which in part is true. That's right. But notice what Paul says. Be imitators of me. If you go down a little bit further, he says, my ways in Christ. His fatherhood is rooted in Christ. They're his children in Christ. So as he says, be imitators of me, he's saying, imitate me so much as I imitate the Lord Jesus. Where I look like Jesus, where I follow Him, you do the same. And church, there, there's a reality that all of us should be able to say in some measure, hey, imitate me as I imitate Christ. As I look like Jesus. Remember, Paul is saying here that I'm conscious of nothing against myself. He said that in verse 4 of chapter 4. So he has no conscious awareness of sin in his life. So he can rightly say, hey, imitate me because I'm following Jesus. And as I follow Him, you do the same. We should be able to do that if we're walking the path of obedience, if we're being sanctified, to bring other believers along and say, hey, you follow me as I follow Him. That's right and good, okay? We should be able to do that. Now, there's, a, I think, a, a deeper level here in the cultural background that we need to understand. That, that's certainly right, I believe. But remember this family language. He's referring to them as kids. As, as his sons, his daughters, what have you, children in the faith. It, if we were to think to a pre-industrial revolution time, so 100 years ago, go back 100 years, 150 years, what have you, it was normative that every kid, when you were a very young age, you knew what you were going to be when you grew up, right? If your dad was a farmer, chances are you were going to be a farmer. If your dad was a carpenter, you were probably going to be a carpenter. If your family owned a general store, you were going to work in the general store. That, that was just normative. You knew what you were going to be based off of who your family was. And so in a very real way, as Paul here is speaking, he's saying, I exhort you as your father to imitate me. Remember, this is in the context of chapter 4 where he's laid out their life and his life, and it looks totally different. And so now he's saying, as 
as your father and you as my spiritual children, our lives ought to look similar. You ought to be growing up into a life that looks a lot like mine. That, that's what I believe he's saying when he says, imitate me. Your life ought to be moving in maturity and in sanctification to look more like the ministry of the Lord Jesus as I pursue him. That's what Paul's saying here. Imitate me as I follow Jesus. Now, look, he continues on here in verse 17. He's still tracking in the same kind of language, the same family kind of language. It says, for this reason, I have sent you Timothy. Now, they would be familiar with Timothy because as Paul was in Corinth, Timothy came and was there with him as well. So they're familiar with young Timothy. They know him. He says, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord? Now, there's other scriptures where Paul talks of Timothy as being his child in the faith, his son in the faith. And here he's saying that once again. So in a, in a real way, he's sending one child in the faith. And I don't mean maturity-wise. I just simply mean their relationship. Paul's relationship to Timothy and Paul's relationship to the Corinthians. He's sending one child to the other children to help encourage them and remind them of how to live. Notice he says, Who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord? And he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. So again, you've got Timothy coming to remind the Corinthians, fellow brothers, fellow sisters, of how Paul lives, his ways in Christ. Once again, remember, it's not just a preference. He's not just reminding them of, hey, hey, this is how Paul likes his latte, and that's what you should do too. That's not what he's doing, okay? His ways in Christ. Just as I teach everywhere. Now remember, Timothy came from another church. He came from Paul's first missionary journey over Lystra, Derby, that area, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Now, he's coming back as a fellow brother, Timothy is, to this church and saying, hey, all these teachings, this is something that's proclaimed among all the churches. Paul's not just being hard on you trying to push this issue. No, 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 no. This is something that's universal among the churches. It's orthodox. He's reminding them of this. This is standard living for all believers, for us as well. Now, if we keep going, look, it's going to get a little more... Um, I don't know if personal is the right word, but maybe. Okay, look, look verse 18. It says, Now some of you have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. Some, not all, so not all of the church is dealing with this, but some of the church. And this is the very thing Paul had hoped would not happen. If you go over to verse 6 in the same chapter, he says, I write this so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. He doesn't want them to become arrogant, puffed up, self-inflated. But the reality is that's happened. It's happened in Corinth where there are some who are arrogant. As though I were not coming to you. Now what does he mean by that? Think about it in this way, keeping with the family type language and illustration. I've got three young sons, and let's just say that Kathleen uh, baked some cookies this week, which she did, by the way, and they were delicious. And so you, you can tell the food is starting to waft in. We're talking about food and thinking about that. Anyways, so let's just say she baked some cookies, 
and puts them in a Tupperware bowl, a little container with the, you know, the sealed lid. You have to do that, otherwise you get ants and things. And so sealed them up. And let's just say that mom and dad go into the office just off from the living room and go back, working on a few things, what have you. So the kids are playing, and they have their own little hierarchy. You know, one kid trumps over the other, that kind of thing. And they get the bright idea, hey, we know where mom put the cookies. Might not be a bad idea to go pop that thing open and get us a chocolate chip cookie. I think we should do that. Now, if they anticipate us walking back into the living room in that next moment, are they going to do it? Probably not, right? They're not so brazen. However, if one convinces the others, I think mom and dad are pretty occupied in the office. They got some stuff to clean up. They're on the computer. They're not coming back. At least not, not until we get a couple cookies scarfed down. We can do this. And they go and they begin and they pop the thing and begin to go, right? They, they've become brazen and not emboldened. Why? Because they don't think mom and dad are coming back. They, they don't think that the authority figure is going to step in here. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. Some of you have become inflated and arrogant because you don't believe that I'm coming back, that, that Paul would come back as the authoritative figure, as the father figure, as the apostle to step back in and write this. So in his absence, yeah, I can do this. I'll get the cookies. That's what they're thinking here in Corinth. That's the situation. Now, look at what Paul says in verse 19 in response to this. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. Now, Paul's ambition is to get there as soon as he can. According to him, he's going to get on the first boat out of Ephesus and get back to Corinth. That's what he wants to do. But Paul's been around long enough to preface and say, if the Lord wills. He doesn't know for certain. If it's up to him, he's coming straight to Corinth. But God's got to work this thing out. Okay, So Lord willing, I'll be coming to you soon. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Not their words, but their power. And you can just imagine that same illustration with the kids and their hand in the cookie jar and, and trying to get that. And Paul saying, I'm going to show up and we'll see who has authority. Do the kids have any authority in that moment? Nope. Not when mom and dad walk in the room. Same deal here. Paul's confident that those who are arrogant, who are puffed up, are totally void of any power. They're all talk. They can talk the talk, but can they walk the walk? He's confident they can't. So he's going to show up and set things right. This is one of those moments, it's kind of like at the end of a movie when the guy who is the hero is about to step in and he's been kind of beat down a little bit and then he's going to show up at the end and whoop everybody. That's a good uh, southern term, right? Whoop. I don't know that... That translates in Portuguese. It's kind of one of those moments. Now, if he left it here, we would understand and say, okay, we see exactly what's taking place here. And we see it in this localized context. We can unpack it, what that implies for us. But Paul's going to say something else here in verse 20 that I think amplifies this exceedingly. He, look at verse 20 with me. I, I think this may be the most consequential text in this textual unit. Maybe. Look what he says. 
For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. The kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. He just took something that was a localized grievance, struggle there in the Corinthian church, and he just applied this to the nature and character of the kingdom of God as a whole. The implications for this are huge. This is a huge moment here because he's expanding this all the way out. This has innumerable implications for us and how we live and operate today. Now, Paul does not use the kingdom of God language a lot. Not, not the same way that Jesus does. Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God all the time. It's like every other verse. He's talking about the kingdom. Kingdom's like this. It's like this. Paul, not so much. It's not that he doesn't talk about the kingdom, just not in this way. So what, what does Paul mean? What, when he says the kingdom of God, what does he have in mind? Well, if we were to go a little further, we'll be there in a couple of weeks, chapter 6, he talks about not inheriting the kingdom of God. So evidently, Paul at least understands the kingdom of God as a future inheritance that will come in full later. Okay, So he at least understands it in that way. If you back up into the letter to the Romans, we see Paul talking about what you eat, what you drink, all these things. But he says the kingdom of God is righteousness and joy and peace. It's something that's present now. So Paul's understanding of the kingdom of God is something that's a, a present reality that will be realized in full later. So this already but not yet kind of understanding of the kingdom of God. That's how Paul sees it. And he sees himself as an active participant, as an active citizen in this kingdom. So how do you live and operate as a citizen of the kingdom of God today and look towards the kingdom that is to come? That, that's helpful for us to think about. We need to understand that. So what do you mean, Paul, when you say the kingdom of God does not consist... In words, but in power. Some churches will take this and go one direction and say, well, if the kingdom does not consist of words, well, we can get loose on our theology. Maybe words don't really matter. doesn't consist of words, so we get loose on that. Get loose on our doctrine, our theology. And we only look towards visible manifestations of power, signs, wonders. Those things validate the kingdom. And if we don't have that, it's not of God. There, there are some churches that believe that. That's the direction they go with this kind of text. Now, there's other churches that would simply ignore this. Ignore verse 20. In fact, I was, I was really surprised as I prepared this week the number of commentaries that really just glossed over this. They, they didn't talk about this verse. It was kind of strange. Not all of them, but some. And there are some churches that would go the other direction and say, no, it's all doctrine, it's all theology, it's all words. And though there may be a demonstration of power in the New Testament, we see that in the first century, but that doesn't happen today. And they remove it totally. The kingdom of God totally removed from the power that we see in the New Testament. So you see both ends of that spectrum. Probably in this city, I would venture to say. And I submit to you, friends, that both of those are equally in error. So what does he mean here? 
What does he mean when he says, the kingdom does not consist in words, but in power. Paul uses the word power 15 times in this letter. 1 Corinthians. He uses it a lot more in his other letters, but let's just look here in the immediate context. What does he mean when he's talking about power? You can look at a a couple places that he uses it early on. It's talking about salvation. It's the power of God and the salvation to those who believe. We see it used in that way. You go towards the end of the book. We see him use it with reference to the resurrection. Resurrection from the dead. Now that's a demonstration of power. You also see a couple places where it talks about power being seen in discipline. We're going to get to that next week in chapter 5. So there's a real aspect of the power of the kingdom and discipline, okay? But there's about 20% of the times he uses it in this book that it's directly tied to signs, wonders, miracles, miraculous works. We have to wrestle with that. We need to see that. Let me say it this way. This wasn't in my notes, but I, we'll, we'll go with it. A couple of years back, I, I was living in India. My, my wife and I, we were there before we had kids. And part of our role and responsibility was helping with volunteer groups that would come and spend time there. And I had the privilege to host a couple of pastors that came one week. And one of the guys that... Uh, was with us uh, for that week, he, he would be what you would call uh, a cessationist. And that he believed that, much like what I described a moment ago, the signs, the wonders, those things, all confined to the New Testament, uh, first century, and that's it. We don't see those things today. So India is a very interesting place to go if that's what you believe. So he, he came, and, and we had the opportunity one day to go out and do some evangelism in a very popular area in New Delhi. And so we're there, he, myself, and an Indian pastor. And he begins to share a little bit and try and evangelize this group. And it it doesn't go anywhere, falls flat. So goes, starts another conversation with some other folks, and it falls flat, nothing happens. There's there's hundreds of people around. And uh, things just aren't going well. It gets to be about lunchtime. And so we decide to go get something to eat. So what do you do? You go to KFC. So we went to KFC and uh, had lunch, came back. And, you know, I said, I said, brother, there's hundreds of people in this place. I don't know who God is working on. We need to just simply stop and ask Him to show us. He, he needs to bring the right person because I don't know where any of these people are spiritually. I don't know what's going on in their lives. And you can kind of see the doubt in His eyes that, okay, yeah, whatever. So we sat on a curb, kind of like this here. We, we just sat on a curb and began to pray. And we prayed with our eyes open. And I remember praying from John chapter 3 where the wind blows, the, the Spirit is like the wind, it goes wherever it pleases. God is free to move as He pleases, as He wishes. Where He'll go, where He comes from, we don't know. And about that time, a physical wind blew across our face. And as that happened, there was a gentleman about 30 meters away that locked eyes with us. And I remember hearing this pastor beside me. He, he literally said, no way. 
And he said, is that guy going to walk towards it? Yeah, he's walking towards it. Is he going to sit down? Yeah, he's going to sit with us. Comes and he sits down. And come to find out, this gentleman, we had about a 45-minute conversation with him. He was a, a Muslim from a village outside of New Delhi. And his son was there having an eye surgery. And so he was there just for a couple of days. He'd be leaving the next day. And to my knowledge, he didn't come to faith that day. But we got to have some really good conversation, really open, honest, transparent conversation. And at the end of it, we asked, we said, well, brother, have you ever read a Bible? Do you have one? I said, no, I don't. Now, remember, he's, he's Muslim, so he doesn't read the Hindi script. He reads out of Urdu. Well, that morning, I'd happen to put an Urdu Bible in my, my book satchel. I've never said satchel. What backpack, right? <laughs> and so we say, well, brother, can we give you a gift? Can we give this to you? He said, absolutely. And so that day, he goes forward with a copy of God's Word, maybe the only copy that's ever made it to his village as he returned. I don't know what happened to that individual. Maybe he came to faith. I hope he did. But God moved in an incredible way that day, and he continues to operate in that very way. He's free to do so however he pleases. Church, how is it? I'm getting off my notes, but I just... Might it be that so many of our churches are utterly powerless because we've confined what God may or may not be able to do? We say this is what He has to do or can or can't do. He's God. He's free to act as He pleases in accordance to His will and accordance to His character. So we have to acknowledge this in Scripture. We need to see this. God moves in these ways. Just as He says in Acts chapter 14, as incredible things are taking place and it says that, that God is testifying to the word of His grace through all of these signs and wonders. It's all to affirm and confirm what's being done. The word of His grace. The testimony of His grace. Now let's, let's keep moving here. Because that's, that's just one use of this language. This power. And I think there's two other times that He uses it that's very helpful and clarifying for us. The two most helpful occasions that Paul uses this word, I believe, for us is one in chapter 2. If we look at chapter 2, verse 4, he says this, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the power, excuse me, of the Spirit and of power. So here you see him comparing his language, his message, the gospel message, his preaching, along with the wise words of the Corinthians and of the world, of the day. And he's saying the, the distinguishing mark is not the fact that they're words, but that his preaching is characterized by the Spirit and power. There's something distinct. So it's not as though we dismiss words, throw it out. No, it's just that there's a certain character about those words. They possess something. He says here, the Spirit the spirit and of power. They characterize the words, the message that is coming out of Paul's mouth, out of the appointed messenger. And that same power comes out of your mouth when you proclaim the gospel faithfully. It's the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. It's accompanied with power. Now I think even more clarifying for this, if we were to go all the way over chapter 14, this is verse 11, and I think this is really helpful for what Paul's saying, just further clarifying this. He says... If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian 
and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. Now, I can relate to this really well right now because I don't understand Portuguese very well. And sometimes people hear me speak in English and they don't understand my English very well. And so I feel you, Paul. I got you on this. But with verse 11, look, he says, If then I do not know the meaning. Our translation doesn't do right service to this because the actual word there is, is power. It's the same word. The meaning here, that's the same power. That's the same word in the, in the Greek as what you get back over in chapter 4 and chapter 2. It's the same thing. So he's saying, if I do not know the power of the language, then I'll be a barbarian. So the one who I speak to and vice versa. Consider this. Uh, every day when I come into the office, I, I park my little car just to, I don't know, just right over there. Okay, there's a little parking lot and the guys are super nice there. And so I, I park my car there and um, they don't speak a lot of English. I don't speak a lot of Portuguese yet. We're getting there. And uh, so that happens every day. Let's just say one day that I take my little car. I'm not saying that like in Boston. It's, it's literally a car, like K-A. That's the kind of car it is. So let's say I take it over there. And after I drop it off, they pull it to the back of the lot. And for some reason, it won't turn off. And the motor begins to overheat. And it bursts into flames. And it, it erupts. It, it just, it's burnt to a pile of ashes. And that's it. That's all that's left of the car. Okay. And let's say that I, at the end of the day, I make my way back to the parking lot. And they meet me at the gate. And they begin to describe everything that took place. And they're speaking in Portuguese saying, you know, Seth, I'm so sorry, but your car wouldn't turn off and it overheated. And now it's just a heap of ashes. And we're really sorry that we couldn't do anything for it. It's a good chance I'm not going to understand any of that language. Talking about fire and cars. And that's just not vocabulary I have yet. So I'm going to kind of smile. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know, that kind of thing. And, and then I'm going to kind of look around and start looking for my car. Right? Why? Those words had no power over me. They had no impact in my life. No, literally, they felt flat. Nothing. Were they real words? Absolutely. But it didn't have any impact on me. I think that's what Paul's getting at back in chapter 4. When he's saying this kingdom does not consist of words, but in power, it's not mere words, but it's a word, a message that has an impact on its hearers, that always accomplishes exactly what God has purposed for it to accomplish. That's the message. That's the gospel. That Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, died a death that was meant for me and you, died on the cross, was raised again, ascended, seated at the right hand of God the Father, where He acts as our intercessor right now. And to those who confess and believe in Him, we have the right to be called children of God. Friends, that's the gospel, and it has power to impact lives and change people and change a world and society. That's why so many of the people in Paul's missionary journeys, you go through the book of Acts, and they're saying, these guys who came and they flipped the world upside down, the gospel has an impact. Look all over the world. Places where the gospel has been. Even in our postmodern societies all throughout Europe and what have you. Things are different there because the gospel made an impact. It changed people. The kingdom of God is not merely words. It's not empty or hollow. 
consist of power. That's what Paul's saying. Now, he goes on to say, and I'll just say in brief, he says, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love? And I don't think he's pitting discipline with love here. I think he's just saying there's a certain way in which I can come that's going to be a rebuke or with love and a spirit of gentleness. I just think he's simply laying those two side by side. Church, I think two things we need to deal with this morning. We need to ask ourselves. One, how much does our life look like that of the Lord Jesus? Are we imitating Paul so much as he imitates Christ? Does our life look like that of the Lord Jesus? Are our affections right? We need to ask ourselves that. And I think, two, we need to evaluate our understanding of the kingdom of God. How do we see it? Do we have a perspective or a view of the kingdom of God that is not in line with Scripture? Have we determined in our own minds what God can or cannot do, that He won't operate in this way, this can't happen, in such a way that that we never see the hand of God move. We never see His power exercised because we've already determined that it can't happen. We need to repent of that if that's where we are this morning. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation of those who believe. It's the message we cling to. It's the message that has us all here today. Your life was changed. It got you here today. Here's what we're going to do. Let me do this. We are going to have communion this morning. Uh, First Sunday of the month, we always share communion together. And one of the purposes of communion, there's two, I believe, in particular. One is proclamation. The other is examination. And so what I'd like to do here in just a moment, our worship guys are going to come up and they're going to play a song. And I want you to take this opportunity to examine your heart. Make sure you're right before God. Ask yourselves these questions. How do you see the kingdom of God? Is it aligned scripturally, rightly? Are you pursuing Jesus and holiness and righteousness? Are you pursuing those things? Is there a sin in your life that you're conscious of that you need to confess this morning? Do that. Take, this is the perfect opportunity to do that. Or maybe you're not a believer this morning and the Lord's pulling on your heart saying, I want to know this Jesus. You deal with that this morning, okay? So they're going to come up here in just a second and we're going to have just a time of response, okay? I'm I'm not going to ask, normally we have folks come outside and pray with you. I'm, I'm not going to ask that we do that right now, okay? What we're going to do is just have a time. They're going to play and we inspect our hearts, all right? If maybe there's a brother or sister you need to go to to right or wrong, you do that. You deal with that. All right, this is our opportunity. Let me pray, and then the guys will come up, and you'll be obedient to what God's asking you to do this morning. Father, I thank you again for this morning. I thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you that it is right and true. And Lord, I do pray that this morning, as, as we examine your text, I pray that, Lord, that it would penetrate our hearts. Lord, that, that you would align us more rightly with what you'd have us to be. 
Lord, you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to understand. Lord, may we recognize your kingdom rightly, that we might be active participants in it, that we act and behave as citizens, knowing the kingdom of which we are a part of, recognizing the power that is available, that is there. And Lord, also clinging to the, the sweet doctrines and theologies and Lord, the, the knowledge that is there as well. Lord, I pray we not segment those things, but Lord, that we walk in Your truth, guided by Your Spirit. Lord, trusting that You are free to do as You please. And Lord, I, I just pray that You do a mighty work among us. You continue to do that. That You, Lord, testify to the Word of Your grace by many signs and wonders and miraculous things, whatever that might look like. Maybe that's people coming to faith like at the beginning of this book, descriptions of power and people coming to Jesus, Lord, the resurrection, all the various aspects. But Father, make Your power known. Lord, we love You. That's in Jesus' name. Amen.